You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Streamer Showdown Champion Sachs. What was it like savagely crushing the other pros in the world? So I feel like savagely crushing is a bit misleading <laughs> as all three of my matches went to three games and they were incredibly tight. I had a lot of like really good top decks uh, when I needed them. But yeah, so this week I competed in this sort of like unofficial streamer showdown that was organized by a streamer known as Just Lolaman. Um, and I got to compete with the likes of uh, Mike Sigrist. Kenji Numathanummy, uh, Kyle Rose, drafting with Deathsea and Voxy. And it was a really, really cool experience and very, very stressful. And I am proud to say that I brought home the W for us. Excellent. I expect nothing less. We've got high <laughs> standards here on Lords of Limited. Absolutely. How are things with you this week in the world of Aquaria? They're going well. I have been playing some best of one on Arena. Arena is different than MTGO. Like the draft vibe is different, but maybe it happened on MTGO this week too. But cycling really has been cut. Mm-hmm. Most drafts I've been in on Arena in best of one. And I cruised up to Diamond, 7x almost all the way to Diamond. And then I hit Diamond and have been struggling a bit. I mean, like my win rate once I hit Diamond is probably just slightly above 50% my last few drafts or so. Mm-hmm. Have had some have had some strings of bad luck, but it has been a blast. The thing I love about this format more than any other is playing the games. I'm never particularly interested, but there's a lot of decks that I just want to keep playing games with. Yeah, I mean, there are so many small decisions. I feel like I get overwhelmed at times on stream with folks being like, oh, why didn't you do this one thing? And I'm like, oh, because I just missed it or like I wasn't thinking about it. But then maybe down the road, not cycling my one CMC cycler on end step versus waiting to like you know, trigger my reptilian reflection on my own turn? Or like, am I trying to hit a land this turn? Like all these small, small decisions that end up really mattering down the line. This is a really difficult, it's a complex format to draft and to play. Yeah, it's a blast. So today we've got in store for you eight is the new seven. And we're going to be doing something that we've never really done on the show, Ben. We're going to dedicate an entire episode to rares. Whoa. Yeah, we're going to be talking about all 10 of the companions, uh, their implications for draft, sort of our, our loose power rankings of them, and then what you're looking for if you are so lucky to have these as your companion. But before we get into any of that, we've got to talk about the Lords of Limited Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. Now, we always talk about the Discord being the thing that everyone who gives back to the show gets access to, and it is hopping, it's popping. We've got our weekly FNMs as well to uh, organize some folks to be doing drafts with each other. Other, but I wanted to just highlight one spot that's a little higher up the rankings, which is the hero tier level that has its own private section of the Discord. And that is just a direct line to me and Ben. So if that's something you're interested in, you know, we, we try and be as active as we can in the rest of the Discord throughout the week. But the hero tier, that is a guaranteed line to either Ben or I giving you feedback on your deck, on your draft, your draft log, your deck pick, what's the build, any of that stuff. And we've got a lot of people in there utilizing that this week, which has made me really happy. So kudos to those folks. And if that's something you're interested in, you can go to our Patreon page to check all that good stuff out. And each and every week, we want to make sure that we welcome our new patrons. So this week, we are welcoming Sawyer, Sebastian, KL, William, Joseph, Tyler, Beyond the Patch, Thomas, Charlie, Alex, Matt, Kev, Caesar, Dan, and Rattleclaw. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. This format is great, and everyone that has joined at the start of this format, everyone that's joined since the beginning, I, I cannot believe the Patreon. 
It's yeah. incredible. Thank it, you, thank you, thank you. Agreed. All right, so let, let, let's dive right in to the companions here. You uh, sort of teased this a couple weeks ago. You, you let me know that we could do a whole episode on the companions. And I have to say, even though they are probably maybe one of the, the most broken things that Magic has ever introduced to the game, they, they're probably my favorite thing about the format, Ben. What do you think about that? I think they're gas in Limited. I, I much prefer this format because it has companion than if it didn't. Mm-hmm. I think it adds a, a real layer of complexity and tension to the draft process. Yeah, and I think for for you and certainly for me as, as folks who really enjoy build-arounds or building a deck that's greater than the sum of their parts, the, one of the reasons the companions are so so broken in that way or so pushed in that way or so consistent in that way is is because of that last word, consistency. You know, oftentimes if you build around a card and limited, you may not see it in all three of your matches, but you're guaranteed to see it not only in every game, but in your opener. So you just know that you're going to be able to get, if you get to five lands, you can play Karuga or whatever. You know, you, you're going to get to know that you'll have access to that card. So that makes every other piece of the puzzle of your deck work towards that card in a way that you don't always have in terms of consistency with other build arounds. Absolutely makes sense. And I think they're really powerful and limited, but I don't think they're ban worthy or anything like that. <laughs> I feel I feel great when I have them in my deck and I feel bummed when I see it on the other side of the battlefield, but I've beaten a lot of them and you feel like a million bucks when you beat somebody that companion. Right. Well, I do think it's it's very skill testing in terms of knowing when to force it, knowing when to move off of it, when to when you get it pack three, is it worth giving up on this handful of cards to go for this one other powerful build around that you get? Like all of that, I think really leads to, I think probably folks like you and I having edges in that respect to knowing when to go into it and when to not. And perhaps other folks leaving percentage points on the table, because I, I, like I say, it's not always when I face a companion deck that I'm like, oh, no, I can't win. Oftentimes I see folks making mistakes. I'm like, oh, you probably shouldn't have done that. Or, oh, wow, you should have, but I would have done it in this different way. Or, or there are play patterns that people are missing out on. And we're, we're going to hope to illuminate all of that stuff for you in the next, uh, you know, 50 or so minutes. Boom, let's get into it. Okay, so I think what people really, really want, and it's not something that you or I are, are particularly interested in, in putting out there, is like a hard one through 10 list of this is the best companion, this is the worst companion sort of thing. And that's nice clickbaity stuff, but I don't think is actually particularly helpful. You're not often going to have a choice between you know two of them for pack one, pick one, and you're not often going to have a, a viable choice between companioning two of them you know, in in a single deck. So I think what's more interesting is to sort of put them into, we've got four different categories here. So the first one that I think is, you know, the one that is the most important is the most powerful ones, the ones that I'm sort of on. And I think you and I have a different take here. I'm sort of on hard force, pack one, pick one, you know, looking to do it if at all possible, Um, often pivoting pack two, pick one, and even sometimes pack three, pick one, it can help you know, really pick up the pieces of a draft that's gone awry. Yeah, I'm not on hard forcing any of them. These these five that we've got listed here, though, I very, very, very much want to companion and I'm willing to give up several very good cards to yeah. be able to companion them. And so those five in no particular order are Lurus of the Dream Den, Lutri the Spell Chaser, Karuga the Macrosage, Garuda Doom of Depths, and Obosh the Prey Piercer. So I've played with all of these in this tier except for Obosh, and I can confirm all of them are very, very, very good. And we'll dive deeper into them later on in the show. So what's the next tier here? Next tier is not as powerful, but also doesn't ask as much of you. So this is like one tier below those, and that is Gigantha. And I feel 
weird about Gigantha. I'm willing to companion Gigantha, but I'm not willing to give up as much as some other people are, I think, to companion Gigantha. Yeah, I, I think there's. we should talk about when we get to Gigantha what sort of heuristic we want to use. And I have an example from a draft that I did yesterday where I was planning to companion Gigantha and then got some other stuff and moved off of it. And I think that'll be a good way to talk about like how to know when to do it. Because yes, the, the floor is pretty high with Gigantha in terms of like it doesn't ask a lot of you, but it's also not adding as much power as the top five companions are. Next up, we've got more niche, but worth going for. And we've got two in that category, and that's Umori the Collector and Zerda the Dawn Waker. And those, I think, are good, but they're a bit, we're now talking about a bit more narrow stuff going on that you can get to work, but I think the appropriate pieces need to come together for you to want to, you know, take on the inherent risks of companioning them. And then the almost never worth it category, we've got Kahira the Orphan Guard and Yorian Sky Nomad. Yeah, uh, bottom of the barrel there for sure for both of us. So we'll, let's talk in general about how we're drafting companions or perhaps how how you are. And maybe I'll pipe in with a bit more of a uh, a hard take to forcing. Yeah, I think those top five, you should assume you're really trying super hard to companion. And I think even all the way down until we get to Kahira and Yorian. Mm -hmm. But along the way, I'm taking really powerful cards that don't meet companion requirements in case you end up not companioning. For example, you know, if I'm drafting Garuda and there's some three drop bomb that I might want in case I don't get their companion in Garuda, although that's one I probably will get there yeah, because <laughs> it's really, really, really worth it. But I would still take a really, really, really good three drop over a two drop, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it depends like that that gets narrower as the power gap between the two cards gets closer and closer. But I think that's important to note that along the way you should be still intending a companion, but be willing to take cards that don't go along with the companion requirement. And I think the further you get into the draft, the narrower those decisions become, or I'd say the the less flexible those decisions become. Would you agree with that? Like if you feel like going into pack three, you're like, I'm I'm pretty much there. I've got the Garuda deck. I've got, you know, 15, 16, even CMC cards. You're probably not moving off of it at that point. I agree. Yeah. And that's and that depends on the companion too, right? Yes. Like Zerta, Zerta is one I think that you can draft like almost all the way up until the end. Yeah, for sure. I, I think the next thing to keep in mind is that these are all hybrid cards and you should be flexible with the ideas of what the color pairs for the companion are. They all have a lot of possible combinations. We're going to talk about some maybe less intuitive ones, but don't feel like because you've got Garuda that it's a blue-black card. You know, you've got a lot of options for these spells. And then just another pro tip here, I have accidentally done this before. <laughs> be careful when sideboarding to not accidentally sideboard out of your companion. So I had a Garuda deck and, you know, had some cyclers in there and had played a game one night and came back the next day. And I was like, huh, why didn't I put this cycler in my deck? It's it was, way better. When it was, I was monstrous step, right? It was monstrous step. Yeah. And I had a way to cast it. I was like, why didn't I put this in my deck? And so I put it in my deck and submitted. And then game two, there was no Garuda companion. And I was really, really sad. Yes, that is a very good pro tip. Uh, here's another good pro tip is that you still need to draft a good deck around your companion asterisk most of the time i would say some of them you can really like eke out playables you know some of them like garuda or karuga you know you don't even need to get to the the 23 because they're expensive and we'll talk about that in, in a little bit later but you can usually shave on, on playables and and go up in land count but you really do need to make sure that your deck functions beyond just having that extra raw 
card. I think Yorian is a great example of that, is that like one of the reasons we're so down on that card is you just have to put so many junkers and so much filler in your deck that yes, you're starting the game out with eight cards in your hand, but they're not eight good cards. No, 100% not. I, I feel like at the start of the format, like the first week of the format for draft, there was a lot of rhetoric out there on Twitter and things like that about, you know, put a companion in your deck with a ham sandwich and you're going to win. And I do think that's sort of true to an extent with those top five, the bottom five, Gigantha, Umori, Zerda, Kahira, Yorian. I don't think that's as true for at all. But I also think, you know, they're beatable. You know, some games of Magic don't come down to pure card advantage. Sometimes when you mold a six and your opponent has seven cards in hand, you still win the game on your mold of six. It's going to be true for the same of seven and eight. And I think that eighth card, even more so in limited, there's lots of games of limited, you know, where someone dies with five cards in hand. Mm -hmm. Yes, the eighth card is really powerful and it's a bomb and all that sort of stuff. But I just think you need to be aware when you have a companion and when your opponent has a companion, you still are playing games of magic and it's not predetermined because you have a companion who's going to win. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. And I I think these are really tough cards. I think beyond, you know, we talked about last week was the cycling deck, because I think the number one question we would get a lot on Twitter or Discord or on our streams was about cycling decks, how to build them, how many payoffs, how many enablers, how many lands. And I think beyond that, the number one question we get is whether or not to companion. The answer is most of the time, yes. Yes. Like if if people can build a companion deck, most of the time I say, yes, you should companion. But we're going to give you a little bit more more to work with here as we, we move on down the line. So what about playing against companions, Ben? I think first up is Dranith Magistrate, the one white, one three rare uh, that prevents companions from being cast while it's on the battlefield. That can do some serious work out of the sideboard, so don't overlook that little guy. Uh, counter spells come in if you have access to them because you sort of know... You've got this like ticking time bomb of I know they're going to cast this thing on turn five or turn six or if it's Lurus, they're probably going to wait until they have something to recur or if it's Lutri, they're going to wait for something to cast. So you probably know when that window of opportunity to counter something is going to come up. If you've got any exile effects, you know, if it's a large one, Blade Banish or Dire Tactics, you know, if you happen to be on white black, something that can prevent, you know, just get it gone so that they can't possibly recur it because a lot of these companions really want to go alongside reanimate spells because they're so good and you know you're going to have it in your hand. So when you know you're going to have it in your hand, the reanimate spells get a lot better because you know you're going to have a good target at a certain point in the game. Yep, do that holding removal as much as you can for that companion, but you can't always assume that they're going to play it on curve. So again, you sort of have to make sure that you're timing it well with the way the game is flowing. Right, because everybody knows, right? It's all face up. Mm-hmm. Me as the Obosh player, I know, okay, my opponent's probably expecting me to slam this on turn five. That's why they have their blood curdle mana up here. Okay, I'm going to double spell with this two drop and this three drop instead, or this one drop and this three drop rather. (laughs) Or I'm going to wait until I have six mana and I can hold up my fight as one to protect Obosh. Right. And lastly, just knowing that you're down resources from the start of the game and what that means for the game. Can you make your deck a little more aggressive so that the extra cards don't really matter? Can you put more two for ones in your deck so that you can compete with the opponent's extra resources and grind them out, bring in those survivors bonds, you know, so just trying to think on different axes for what it means for how the games are going to play out and what you can do to combat that. Yeah, I think it's really important to know that there are the tools out there to beat these cards. And it's 
important to not just like see that paw print on your opponent under your opponent's name on arena and just go oh i've lost this match like you've got resources at your disposal it's just about knowing how to use them for sure all right well let's dive in here to i think this is my favorite one of the bunch and it's pretty funny because i think this is also one of the most hotly contested companions and this is karuga the macro sage so we read all of these before we dive into them so this is three simic simic hybrid for a five four the companion clause is your starting deck contains only cards with cmc three or greater and land cards and when karuga enters the battlefield you draw a card for each other permanent you control with converted mana cost three or greater so i i posted a karuga deck that i had yesterday on stream i was drafting on arena my pack one pick one sort of went all over the place then i opened karuga pack two pick one i basically threw out all of my pack one and then companioned it and ended up trophying. Posted it on Twitter. Mike Sigrist replied. He thought that this was like his experience from his opponent and himself was that this card was basically unplayable to companion. So he was sort of interested to see my take on it. I'm now 16 and two with the card as a companion. So really high win rate with it. And someone also posted, they were like, how does this deck win? And I was like, it wins by starting the game with 11 or 12 cards in your hand. Yeah, you just bury your opponent in card advantage. I have also done very well with crew on Magic Online. I will say I played with this last night in best of one on Arena, and I think it's not good in best of one on Arena. Interesting, Because of the best of one hand fixer, my opponents just always curved out on me, and it was, it was a lot harder. And on Magic Online or best of three, you don't get that, right? Like your opponents don't curve out on you quite as well. So I would caution karuga in best of one but i have it's been absurd for me on mtgo that makes a lot of sense because i've only been playing best of three on arena so i'm my experience is still the same as playing best of three on magic online so that that makes a lot of sense i hadn't thought about that before so this is a card that i'm really excited about as i said hard forcing pack one pick one pivoting i've done pivoting into it pack two i've pivoted into it pack three it's very powerful it often feels like you start the game with three or more cards than your opponent you want to make sure you hit all your land drops so this is the case with cards like Karuga, like any of the expensive ones, Karuga, Obosh, Garuda, you know that you're going to be starting the game with a powerful five or six drop in your hand. And so you want to make sure you don't stumble along the way. I think the biggest pitfall I assume that people are making by building Karuga decks is not having enough mana sources. I am never playing 17 lands with Karuga. I am usually playing 18 or 19. And that's even with having a few crystals, a few far finders, like Trust me, you're gonna have stuff to do with your mana every single turn, and the way you lose is by not hitting land drops. I agree 100%. I'd say Karuga is probably the best in Sultai Colors or Grixis. I'd say White just probably isn't in the mix most of the time. That's where you're gonna get the best removal. That's where you're gonna get some good ramp or fixing because you know you may often need to be splashing for removal in, in these decks. So uh, so I'd say that's probably its best home. But you can be flexible with this card. Yeah, crystals. Speaking of them, you know, work really well if you need. You know, if you don't need mana, you cycle them on turn two because mm-hmm. you don't have anything else to do on turn two. But if they're on turn five, you know, you can play a crystal and another three drop, and then still have more mana that you will use. I've never not had things to do with my mana in a Kruga deck. And then three drops, I think, are just crazy important when you're drafting Kruga. So stuff like Frostlinks, Moscow Goriak, if you happen to be in red, Frenzied Raptor, Gloom Pangolin, you want three drops that block well and that help you stabilize on turn three. I would want at a minimum like eight to nine three drops in my deck, I think, if I'm companioning Karuga. You also want those blockers on turn three to stick around so they can trip when you cast Karuga. So like Frenzy Raptor is good because it's like gonna trade off with something. Frostlinks is good because it like buys you some time. But those 
big butts like Goriak, Gloom Pangolin, Phase Dolphin. Those are the things that are going to be able to hold off a blocker or bounce off of a blocker and then still draw you a card with Karuga when it comes down on turn five or turn six. And that's important. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about with, with crystals real quick is that, yes, the, the play pattern you mentioned of on turn five, you can go crystal three drop. You can go crystal on turn three into crystal three drop on four. And so usually as you're leading into playing Karuga, you want to cast the crystals because they're going to be cantrips for Karuga. And then once you've cast Karuga, you're generally cycling them away if you end up drawing them. Makes sense. I think in general, when you're doing the draft, also, you know, speaking of those three drops, you shouldn't assume that quote unquote junky three drops are going to wheel. So stuff like Mosscoat Goriak or Gloom Pangolin or Frostlinks, you should be picking those cards, you know, picks three through eight and not feeling bad about it. Because mm-hmm. if they don't wheel, it's such a disaster for your deck. Yeah, and you you that's when you'll lose. If you don't get the critical mass of three drops, that's why you're gonna stumble with this deck and you're gonna be like, oh, Krug is unplayable. Like you just need those three drops that either help you buy time, help you ramp, or help you block. Three CMC plus cards that cycle can give you plays to make on turns one or two, which is nice. I mean, it's not a play, you're just drawing cards, but you are using mana before turn three, and that's important. And then, you know, situational cards like a Frostville ambush can again help you buy time if you're feeling like you're still a little behind well now your one cmc cycler actually has applications here and then things like sweepers you know mythos of vadrock pseudo sweeper two for one extinction event stuff like the white mythos all very very good in this deck because you're going to be behind most of the time capture sphere gives you a removal spell that also cantrips off of karuga which is really cool and honey mammoth my boy, mm-hmm. perfect for helping you catch back up with a large body and a boost of life. That's the six mana six six that gains four on ETB. Love that card. If you're playing green and you don't have one to two honey mammoths in your deck, you're doing it wrong. And my last bit of tech here is that channeled force is low key great in this deck. It gives you a removal spell on turn four for something. And in a post Karuga hand, it gives you a way to deal with flood, right? Because you are running 19 lands. And so having a way to just like pitch those extra lands when you're already at eight or nine mana sources with your you know, a couple of crystals in play. Channeled Force is, is really good in this kind of deck. I'm into it. Next up, we've got Garuda Doom of Depths. This is four Demir Demir hybrid for a 6-6. Six, six. And the companion clause is your starting deck contains only cards with even converted mana costs. When Garuda enters the battlefield, each player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard, put a creature card with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. It is also a law of Garuda if you have Honey Mammoth in your deck that your opponent will flip your Honey Mammoth and take it with Garuda. Ooh, yikes. Yeah, pretty unfortunate. Sorry to hear that. (laughs) Uh, So Garuda is insanely powerful, and I think you should be doing almost everything in your power to companion it and bending over backwards. And I think pack two, you should be looking to pivot into Garuda and pack three, depending on your playables, I would try. Basically, if you can get there, get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And similar to Karuga, Garuda is another one where you really want to make sure that you get to six on time. So I really want to run 18 lands at a minimum. And depending on where I ended on playables, I would even run 19 lands. I, in my experience, my preferences to pair Garuda with green uh, for two cards. One is Humble Naturalist, so I can have that on, on turn two, or I can go two drop into Migratory Greathorn to get Garuda out on turn five. 
Path of Migration can also do this. You know, you get to turn four, you play that, you ramp up, and then you get to cast Garuda on five. And that's just, you know, it, it's not, there's nothing special about having Garuda on five versus turn six. It's just that you know it's always going to be in your opener. So unlike when you've got, you know, a, a deck with some some ramp creatures in it, you're not guaranteed to draw your ramp pieces in your opener plus a thing to ramp into. Well, here you are. Every time you draw Humble Naturalist, you know that's getting you to your Garuda on turn five, which is just even more powerful than getting it on turn six. I've played black-white Garuda also. It was very good. My opponents have played blue-black Garuda. I think you can play Garuda in any color pair and it will be great. Uh, cycling, fatties like Void Beckoner, Lava Serpent, and even Imposing Vantasaur are nice as things to do with your mana along the way as well as good hits for garuda to get back into play and i think reanimate goes hand in hand with garuda corpse turn is great as a way to rebuy garuda and even better you know if you've got back for more to bring back garuda fight the game's just over if you back for more garuda yeah corpse turn is going to come up a lot in these companions at least in the ones that can cast it like obviously karuga cannot but when you know that your deck is built around this one creature that your opponent is going to know is coming and that they can kill, having a way to get it back, especially something like Garuda that has value coming into play, it's just pure gasoline. It's so backbreaking too on the other side of the battlefield. When I kill one, I'm just thinking, please don't have Corpse Turn. Please don't have Corpse Turn. <laughs> Cute things to do is thinking about mutate creatures that are even CMC but can mutate for odd CMC that let you play along your curve so you're not missing a turn. So things like uh, the aforementioned Migratory great horn you know you go essence symbiote into that porky parrot as well as a four drop that mutates for three chittering harvester as a six drop that mutates for four insatiable hemophage another four drop that mutates for three those are the kinds of things that let you like cheat with the deck a little bit another thing to keep in mind with garuda is you get access to a lot of premium removal you know blood curdle fire prophecy rumbling rock slide essence scatter ram through all of the good removal in this format it feels like is at two or four cmc which is why the default for that stupid protection human <laughs> is even in the dark. What's that card called? Lava Brink Protector or something? It's not Protector, but yeah. Venturer. Something. Yes, good for you. Boom, I didn't even have to cheat. Last on this list is Sleeper Dart, which I think is sort of a sleeper with companions. It works kind of well with a few of them, and this being one of them. It's a fine card here to just cantrip, holds off an attack for a turn while you're getting to your Garuda mana. Next up, this is one of the few I have not companioned. This is Obosh the Prey Piercer. That's so intimidating. Yeah, buddy. This is three Rakdos Rakdos for a 3-5 Hellion Horror. And the Companion Clause is your starting deck contains only cards with odd converted mana costs and land cards. If a source you control with an odd converted mana cost would deal damage to a permanent or player, it deals double that damage to that permanent or player instead. So I think Obosh, while it definitely can go in a number of different color pairs. I do think red black is the best home. Maybe Mardu is the best home because they have the best slash most relevant one drops. So those are the things you're thinking about here. Obosh is a little bit more constricting. It's funny, like I feel like I've had the chance to companion both Obosh and Garuda. And when I'm companioning Garuda, all I see in the pack are odd CMC cards. And when I'm companioning Obosh, all I see is even CMC cards. So I feel <laughs> like it's always really tough for me to find that balance. But th there's definitely the support there for both. So there's a lot of really cool little combos with the card. I think the first up here, it's obviously great with Whisper Squad. Now, Whisper Squad, you know, I think that's sort of just like one of our pet cards in the format, really one of the best commons. Now, these one mana, one ones that can search up other copies of themselves, now these are one mana, two ones. And that's quite a big difference. Weaponize the monsters. And all of these cards are just premium cards yeah. for the most part, too, which is another great thing about Obosh. But Weaponize the monsters when you sack something deals four. So the game is just 
pretty much over if you have weaponized a Nobosh. Spring Drop Trap now deals six damage, and that's to any target, so you can just go face with that if you want to. Blazing Volley, the single red deal one damage to each creature your opponent's control, is now dealing two damage, which is pretty busted. I have had people with Obosh go double Blazing Volley on me. Looking at you, Dr. Stupid. And again, that card, when it's like, it's well, this is going to be so situational. Well, you know you're always going to have Obosh. So drawing Blazing Volley doesn't feel embarrassing because you know you're always going to be able to, at the very least, on turn six, you can go Obosh Volley if that's going to be a good play for you. Prickly Marmoset and Spell Eater Wolverine now have much bigger first strikes, and first strike is very powerful, certainly with the more power you've got. Uh, Serrated Scorpion now deals four damage to your opponent when it dies rather than just two, which can close out a game as well. Blister Spit Gremlin now deals two damage every time you tap it. And thinking outside of Black Red for cards like Almighty Brushwag, which you can pump up to be like an 8-4 Trampler or Archipelagor if it's tapping down a few things and getting in, that's 14 points of damage. Like there, there's some big hits you can get with cards outside of Black Red as well. And similar to Garuda, you know, if you can get off converted mana cost mutators that mutate for even, they're really nice to play off curve. So Cavern Whisperer as a four drop is pretty sick. Similarly, Majestic Oricorn or Pouncing Shore Shark. There's a lot of things that you can do with Mutate with these two companions to try to still have a normal curve. Uh, Unbreakable Bond plays nicely with your odd CMC cyclers like the Sandworm and Titanoth Rex. You can get that back and now those are both dealing double damage. And Bond is just also a really good way to get Obosh back if he dies. And if you end up in Red Black, you don't get access to Fire Prophecy or Blood Curdle or the Headliner removal spells. So you need to be thinking along the lines of Mutual Destruction, which is great because you should theoretically have some Whisper Squads or the Night Squad Commando. So Mutual Destruction is actually a pretty high pick with Obosh, I think. Mm -hmm. And then Deadweight, Single Black, Minus 2, Minus 2, and Flame Spill, the two red deal four, are the removal spells you really want to be looking out for. Yeah, all right. Up next, we've got Lurus of the Dream Den here. This is the Black-White Companion. Uh, this is one Orzov Orzov for a 3-2. The Companion Clause is each permanent card in your starting deck has CMC 2 or less. It has lifelink, and during each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with CMC two or less from your graveyard. This is, I think, I mean, it's it's uh, it's in the Dream Den. It's a real sleeper here. Like, I think you and I came in on this card being like, there's no way you're going to companion this. At least that's how I felt. But this is one of the most powerful ones we have at our disposal. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of companioning Luris twice and one other time not quite getting there. And even when you don't get there, it's still an insane card in your deck. So what are the things that have, have come up for you most often when you've been companioning Luris? You really want to have a cycling sub-theme if you can, because a lot of the best cycling cards like Flourishing Fox or Valiant Rescuer are two CMC or less. So if you're fortunate enough to get those cards with Luris, your deck's absurd. But there's also just very good black-white decks, I think, that aren't cycling that still use Luris to great effect. And really, you know, you can play Luris outside of black-white. It can go in any color pair that really isn't green, I think would probably be okay. And I think another thing that Loris incentivizes you to do is often want to splash because you really need powerful cards in your deck. So for example, you know, if Ominous Seas is something that goes way up in value with Loris because it's a two CMC card, 
that puts out an 8-8. Yeah, for sure. I've been really, really impressed by a card like that. And those are cards that are great. Like, you know, if Ominous Seas is even your splash, then it's like, fine, if it's my opener and I don't have an island, I'll cycle it away. Maybe down the line, I find that island and then I can play Lurus and play that Ominous Seas. Yeah, absolutely. Lurus is one of the most powerful and unfortunately most fragile companions. So if you've got Lurus, you really want to be looking out for cards like Corpse Churn, Survivor's Bond, Unbreakable Bond, just ways to get it back really, really important. And you should not assume Corpse Churn's going to wheel. The first copy of Corpse Churn is so valuable in a Lurus Companion deck. Right. Because if you think about the reason that I think, and save for Obosh, the other four that we have in our top tier, these are not only the eighth card in your hand, they're really the ninth card, or in the case of Karuga, 10th, 11th, 12th card sometimes in your hand. Because you're never playing Lurus out on turn three. Ideally, you're playing it on turn four or five when you get to recur something in the same turn. So now you've cast an additional card from your eighth card. And then if that dies and you corpse turn it back, and then you get to do that again, you play the card, get something back from your graveyard. Corpse turn is also better than the others in a way because it's adding three more cards to your graveyard. So it's giving you more options to get back with Lurus. It really just plays perfectly in the deck. Yeah, I think the the most important thing to keep in mind when you're companioning Lurus is that you really want powerful low drops that can take over a game. And I think the best of those in the format are Ominous Seas, Skycat Sovereign at rare, if you are that lucky, Valiant Rescuer, and Weaponize the Monsters all are, I think, the, the premium win conditions in Allurist deck. Deadweight and Springjaw Trap are your recurrable removal spells, and you you really want to make sure you have at least one copy of each of those in your Allurist decks. 100% agree. And Sleeper Dart, similarly, one copy goes a long way. That's the two mana cantrips on ETB and can lock down a creature. The thing that I've been most surprised about when I've companioned Lurus is that I don't really feel like I'm missing out on a ton because the value is so consistent in these decks. Yeah, you just bury your opponent in card advantage. Yeah, it's a really, really great card. Up next, we've got Lutri the Spell Chaser. This is one is it is it hybrid for a 3-2 Elemental Otter. Companion, each non-land card in your starting deck has a different name, and Lutri has Flash. When it ETBs, if you cast it, copy target instant or sorcery spell you control, you may choose new targets for the copy. So Lutri's one I've had the pleasure to companion three, four times. I've companioned Lutri a lot. Really powerful if you get pack one, pick one, and you should be actively looking to companion it. And I think it's also one of the ones that's easiest to pivot for, I think. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, if you get it late in pack two or pack three, and you should try to do that. I am willing to give up many copies of commons if I've got good spells to copy. Yeah. So what are those spells that you're looking out for? Um, you really want cheaper removal spells to go along with Lutri. So stuff like Divine Arrow, Swallow Hole, Mutual Destruction is great with Lutri because you only have to sacrifice one creature, but you get to kill two things. Blazing Volley can similarly deal two damage to the opponent's team, similar to Obosh. Suffocating Fumes, also minus two, minus two, Heartless Act, Fire Prophecy, any any removal spell you want. And the cheaper, the better. So f- I found for that reason, Lutri really performs in the Grixis colors, mm. but white also can slot in there pretty well. Pretty much anything but green. Poor green. <laughs> Poor green. Poor green. <laughs> um, but especially, I think, red and black stand out uh, along with Lutri. And one copy of Cathartic Reunion can really go a long way in your deck with Lutri as a way to refuel. So if you Cathartic Reunion, you know, you pitch your two cards, you draw three, 
and then you copy it, but you don't have to discard two cards again when you copy. So Cathartic Reunion all of a sudden becomes discard two, draw six, which is just backbreaking. That's insane. So you talked about, you know, you're, you're willing to give up on multiple copies of commons. So is there any sort of heuristic you can give our listeners for how to think about the weighing the, the pros and cons of companioning Lutri? I think if you've got the removal spells, you should be willing to give up. For example, if I've got if I've got a fire prophecy and a blood curdle, I'm giving up two fire prophecies to companion Lutri. If I've got three fire prophecies total, no problem putting two fire prophecies in the board, companioning Lutri. It's so hard without like a, the specific instance, but I, I would say I would go very far out of my way. I would give up on two rares. If I had two voracious great sharks, one of them's going in the board and I'm companioning Lutri. All right. Yeah, I think that's that's good to hear. So it sounds like as long as you've got the diversity of the powerful removal spells, then giving up on multiple copies of them doesn't matter because in theory, you've got your multiple copies because Lutri is always in your hand. Right. And the, the play patterns with Lutri is frequently either you play Lutri early as a vanilla 3-2 flash to trade with something because you're under pressure. And if you're not, you wait until the late game and then the turn that you play Lutri, the game is usually over because you either drew six off Cathartic Reunion or you killed your opponent's two best creatures. I think another thing to keep in mind while you're drafting Lutri, if you've got a close choice between a common and uncommon, most of the time it's right to take the uncommon because you're less likely to see that than you are a common. And Lutri also incentivizes you to go three colors a lot so that you get the best of three colors, you know, the unique cards in those three colors instead of just restricting yourself to two colors. So I would keep that in mind as well and take fixing accordingly highly. Speaking of mana, don't skimp on lands in a Lutri deck. Oftentimes you get the best Lutri turns at seven mana, sometimes eight mana, you know, six at least. Like you really want to make sure you don't miss land drops along the way. And I think you can just reliably feel like you're going to start the game with nine plus cards because of what Lutri is copying. Right. And lastly, I know I sort of already mentioned this, but don't be afraid to run Lutri out as a 3-2 flash. It's a free eighth card and you should not feel bad about running it out and blocking. That's still a good exchange for you. And people will forget sometimes. They'll just like attack with Humble Naturalist on three into your three open mana and you just go, all right, I'll just snap this off. And that often feels like that's there. There you go. There's your ninth card, right? You're killing their Naturalist for free with your eighth card. Boom. All right. So moving into the next tier, right? Those are the ones we're, we're the hottest on, the highest on. Now we've got Gigantha the Wellspring. So this is the Gruul one. It's four and red-green hybrid for a 5-5 elemental elk. The companion clause says no card in your starting deck has more than one of the same mana symbol in its mana cost. And you can tap to add Wooburg, and this mana can't be spent to pay generic mana costs. So I think the most important thing to start off with Gigantha is that all the good removal in the format, and honestly, almost all the cards in the format are single-pipped. You're rarely giving up on very much to play this card. It doesn't net you a second card immediately like a lot of the previous ones, right? It doesn't feel like you're starting with nine cards, but a free 5-5 is nothing to sneeze at. I have found that with Gigantha, most often you're deciding between a rare and Gigantha or two rares and Gigantha. That feels like the rares are where the double pips are at. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I was scrolling through because I was looking at the full spoiler to look at all the removal spells and how it's all single pipped. And I was just sort of amazed that basically all the commons are all single pipped. And maybe that just feels weird coming off of Theros Beyond Death where devotion existed. So you had like, you know, Nyxborn Courser as one white white in the three drop slot at common, or you just had these cards that were like so impactful on your mana. And we just don't really have that here at the non-rare slot. Gigantha is especially good in cycling decks where you can turn on your situational off-color cyclers. So maybe now you can cast Wilt or Suffocating Fumes. That's something really to keep in mind there. 
This card makes splashing so much easier because you know your fixing is always going to be in your opener, right? Some of the, the tension in splashing something is like, well, am I going to find one of my three sources for the card? Well, you know you always are, provided that Gigantha doesn't get like blood curdled or capture sphered. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also really worth mising a forest or a mountain in your blue-white deck or whatever you know you happen to be doing that's not red or green, just to try to companion Gigantha if you you know, aren't giving up much. Mm -hmm. Should certainly try to free roll that. There's not a ton else to say, I feel like. The card has a really high floor and should be companioned almost always. So I I'm less on the companion Gigantha almost always. So let me let me pick your brain here a little bit. What power level of cards are you willing to give up to companion it? So if you have to give up a Vivian, are you still companioning Gigantha? I, I still haven't gotten to play with Vivian. I think I'm not. I think I'm not giving up Vivian. How about, I don't know. Let me, that's, so like, I, that's, I, my go, that's my go-to. I'll throw out what happened to me yesterday. So I had a Gigantha early yesterday in a draft. It was like pack one, pick three. Was building around it all the way through, you know, passed up on an alert heed bonder, even though I'm obsessed with the Vigilance life gain deck. Then pack three, pick one, I think. Got a dirge bat in a pack with not much else. Took dirge bat just as the like, maybe like I'm still planning to companion Gigantha here, but maybe something else happens. And then I got past an Obosh and that pushed me into, I'm not going to companion Gigantha. I'm going to play dirge bat and Obosh. And then that opened up me being able to play a greater sandworm for my back for more. So those like two and a half things led me to not companion it. So I think there there is some tension there. There are some tiebreakers to make. Um, but it, it's at the rare slot, as you said. All right, that makes sense to me. Speaking of alert heed bonder, can we just derail this episode for a bit? Yeah. That card is so good. And I think you and I discovered it independently this week. No, it, well, I discovered it when you Skyped into my stream and we drafted the double heed bonder quadruple main serval deck. Yeah, it that card's absurd. It should not be going late. Heatbonders B plus. I'm taking a pack one, pick one over Blood Curdle. Not close. It's very good. It is really, really good if you can get multiples, if you get the support. Again, it it feels like a card where I'm like, I want to build around it, and then I want to make sure I have like a survivor's bond or a corpse turn to get it back. Because if it dies, I really want to be make sure that I can get it back into play because my whole deck is built around just getting this nice pillow fort of gaining like three to four life every turn. What's your what's your highest life total? Oh, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't kept track. Why? What's yours? 173, baby. Oh my God. So good. I feel like I've had opponents concede far before I, I get to that that high of a total. The best part about it too is it smashes cycling decks. Yes. Like that deck crushes cycling decks. Mm -hmm. All right. Back to your regularly scheduled programming here. <laughs> Next up is Zerta the Dawn Waker. This is one Boros Boros hybrid for a 3-3 Elemental Fox. Each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability. Abilities you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two less to activate. This effect can't reduce the mana and the cost to less than one mana. And you can pay one tap Zerta to make target creature unable to block. So I think the obvious home for this card is in a cycling deck, since cycling counts as an activated ability, if you didn't know that. So it also makes all of your two CMC cyclers into one CMC cyclers, right? So that's a pretty pretty big shift there. Yeah. So in the cycling decks, you miss out on Reptilian Reflection, Snare Tactician, and Prickly Marmoset, which is a real cost. But if you get the premium uncommons, your deck's going to be nuts if you can companion Zerta along with those premium uncommon payoffs. So keep that in mind as you're drafting deck building. Um, if you're trying to companion Zerta with cycling, I also got Zerta in pack three last night 
and was able to companion it in a black red sacrifice deck with six whisper squads. So Ooh. I would also be on the lookout for Zerda and black red. That was not on my radar until I did it last night. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a great way to talk about a lot of non-intuitive homes and interactions for this card, which you want to keep in mind. So whisper squad, great example. It only now costs a single black to activate and it pairs really nicely here. Sanctuary lockdown tap costs one. Mentor activations now cost a single color to activate, which is big game. Skycat Sovereign, I've had the pleasure of having this with Zerda as companion and not as companion, and you can pay blue-white to make a cat, which is busted. And at Uncommon, you have General's Enforcer, and now it's only black-white as a cost to make a human. And Lords of Limited frequent guest Ryan Sachs, huge fan of this card in red-green, going along with Brushwag. So the plus three, plus three and Trample now only costs one and a green with Brushwag. Fertilite activation now only costs a single green to go search up a land. And our favorite card... Weaponize the Monsters only costs one, baby. Yeah. So for this companion... It's really good if you get there, but it's also important to take powerful cards along the way that don't allow you to companion in case you don't get there. So like, you you know, as we said, this is now in the, the, the tier of, you know, worth going for, but also be willing to move off of it. Right. This is one up until the very end when I've pack one, pick one it that I'm frequently trying to decide if I'm going to be able to companion or not. And usually that decision doesn't come until pack three. Next up, we've got Umori the Collector. This is two Golgari Golgari hybrid for a four five legendary creature ooze. The companion clause says each non-land card in your starting deck shares a card type. And as Umori the Collector enters the battlefield, you choose a card type. Spells you cast of the chosen type cost one less to cast. Now for limited, this all that card type stuff might as well just say creature because that's the only thing you can do with it. And I think this is the only companion of the 10 that you and I have not done, right? I have not done this one yet, no. Yeah, I, I as well have not companioned Amori. So this is a little bit of theory crafting here. We've seen trophy decks with this. We've also heard tales of woe of trying to companion it and not getting there. I think we've played against effective decks with Umori and perhaps ineffective decks with Umori. So what's going on here with this card? There's a significant cost to putting Umori in your deck, I think, since it gives your opponent a lot of information about how they can operate in the matches, right? There's a very narrow subset of things that you can have to interact. I would have told you prior to playing against this card that I loved playing Magic and was not stressed at all ever until I played against an Umori (laughs) deck. And I just like I had the safest feeling I've ever had in my entire life. So I must just like be very low key stressed all the time wondering what my opponents could have. And it was just gone. I was I was so confident in my plays against my opponent. It was a great feeling. So again, like uh, like some aforementioned or perhaps unlike some of the aforementioned companions, I do think Umori is less flexible. I think it mostly wants to be in black green. And that's because one for green, you want to have access to again, humble naturalist to have the dream curve of turn two naturalist Umori on three, and then hopefully have a very explosive turn four dropping two or three creatures out of your hand. Right. The the times I've lost to Amori, it's been when the opponent has just vomited their hand out after turn three in Amori. Yeah. And then the flip side of black gives you sort of pseudo spells uh, attached to your creatures and mutate also gives you that as well. But so think about the, the flash creatures like lurking dead eye to finish off a creature. That's your blood curdle impersonator. You've got blitz leech as well. That's now cheaper because of Amori that can, you know, give you a combat trick esque effect and then mutate obviously dirge bat is the best among them because that just actually gives you a kill spell but other mutate creatures along the way if you're in green and you can splash for others then then you're 
you're getting spell-like effects. You're getting discard from Cavern Whisperer, card draw from Dreamtail Heron, rummage from Cloud Piercer. You know, you, you get spell-like effects from those cards. The uncommon cycler chain can also be used as pseudo-combat tricks, especially if you've got the first strike cycler or the death touch cycler. So that's something to keep in mind if you're playing against Umori decks as well. All right, so now we're going to move into our fourth and final and lowest tier here of the cards that we're not really excited to companion. Let's start off with Kahira the Orphan Guard. Kahira is one Selesnia Selesnia, 3-2 Cat Beast, and companion is each creature card in your starting deck as a cat, elemental nightmare, dinosaur, or beast card. This has vigilance, and each other creature you control is a cat, elemental nightmare, dinosaur, or beast gets plus one, plus one, and has vigilance. So the first thing that I wanted to do, because I had not companioned this, was to check out the breakdown of creature types at common or uncommon. We've got this in our show notes. That's one of the, the perks of being a patron. So we don't need to like dive into the nitty gritty here. I'm just going to give you the fast and loose here. So cats, there's 10 total, and that's almost all white. Five of them are white, two red, white, one black, white. Elementals, there's 10 total, mostly in the Simic color pairs, four blue blue, two green, and one blue-green. Nightmare, 10 total, mostly black, almost exclusively black. Seven of the 10 are black, one black-green, and one black-white. Dinosaurs, there's eight total, mostly concentrated in red. And then beasts, there are 13 total, mostly in green. Uh, Five of them are green, one black-green, two blue-green. So uh, that breakdown was just more for myself and perhaps helpful for folks who have never played with the card as well. That All pairs seem to be viable. I was really looking for like, where is it best to companion? Seems like red adds the least to the party. Black green might be the best home for it, but it it does seem like, you know, the the pieces are there across all the colors. Yeah, I have companion Kahira once and I did end up in black green and it was not worth the restriction in my opinion i also i also wasn't on the corpse churn tech at that time though so maybe if i had had a couple copies of corpse churn i would have felt better about it right black green in addition to feeling like the most highest density of the the creatures that kahira cares about it gives you fixing from creatures like fertilid and great horn to dip into other colors and gives you access to all the recursion spells, the corpse churn, survivor's bond, though survivor's bond is only getting you back one creature because you have no humans in your deck, unbreakable bond and back for more. All those cards can can go in the black green version of Kihira. And I think just as far as play patterns, Kahira, you often want to be the last card you play out after you've built out a board of, you know, creatures that meet this requirement, obviously, because you've got Kahira as your companion. But I would not bend over backwards to companion Kahira I think I would just draft normally and if I got pretty close towards the end maybe I'd think about it but I would not be giving up on premium non-creatures of this type to companion Kahira for the most part right and I think before we get any sort of backlash of well I companioned Kahira and trophied with it and you guys are wrong I don't think that's what we're saying at all we're just saying that certainly compared to the eight creatures we've already talked about the bang for your buck for Kahira in terms of the hoops you have to jump through and then what you get for jumping through those hoops doesn't add up quite as much as as the cards we've already talked about absolutely and last but not least or last and maybe least honestly (laughs) yikes Yorian Sky Nomad. Yorian Sky Nomad. Three Azorius Azorius for a 4-5 companion. It has flying. Its companion clause is your starting deck contains at least 20 cards more than the minimum deck size. So that's 60 for limited. And when Yorian enters the battlefield, you can exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control. Return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step. I feel like 
I have some atoning to do for my card evaluation sins here, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. Lay it on me. Well, I was just so high on Yorian in the set review. I think when I was talking to Alex on in my on-stream set review, I gave it an A minus. I was just like, yeah, you're just like, whatever. You draft a bunch of cyclers, you like draft a three-color deck, and now you start the card with start the game with eight cards in your hand. And yes, that's true, but it turns out a 60-card limited deck is almost always a bit of a yikes. Yeah, this was the first companion I did. And I think I did it twice pretty early on in the format and had pretty bad experiences with it both times. I knew my deck would have been better with 40 cards. And I was getting a lot of pushback on that and a lot of flack for it. Um, from, you know, people that are in the Lords of Limited Circle or whatever, you, Alex, I, I just really felt it was true. So it's good to good to hear that you know, you're coming on on my wavelength. Yeah, I, I do think this is the worst of the 10. So unlike in standard where Yorian is just everywhere and is in all the best decks, I believe Yorian is the weakest of the companions here for limited. The cost to adding 20 cards to your deck is huge. You know, when they were talking about this a couple weeks ago on limited resources, LSV mentioned that he, he was like, so in limited, you're adding 50% of your deck, whereas in standard, you're only adding 33%. And that that is a pretty big difference. You know, the cost of adding 20 cards or, or like, you know, adding 50% of your deck size to your deck is huge. It gives you very little flexibility during the draft, right? A lot has to go right for this to be worth it. And I'm putting right in our show notes here in quotes, because some of these things that are going right are actually not good. And so Yorian like helps shore that up if your draft is going poorly. But let's let's look through this. So one, your colors have to be extremely open. Two, you're going to need good fixing since you're almost certainly going to need to be three colors of some sort. But that has tension because you can't really spend many or any picks on lands since you need to get to about 35 playables. So the ratio of, you know, 17 lands out of a 40 card deck is about 25 and a half lands to a 60 card deck. So, you know, you're going to want to get to about 34, 35 playables. Yeah, I, I just had no idea what <laughs> about <laughs> it was like, chat, please help me who plays standard. What do I need to do? <laughs> you also don't really get to utilize pockets of synergy or things like that because that, that all gets worse because your deck is so much thicker. Right. So you're just like decreasing the opportunity to draw your alert heed bonder with your vigilance cards with your keen sight mentor because those are now three cards out of 60 rather than three cards out of 40 or even rares you know if you've got a skycat sovereign and a great shark yeah. you're way less likely to see those cards that are very good and i will say i want my first yorian draft i got there on straight blue white and it was still not worth it yeah you often end up having to run a bunch of air as well like random cyclers or cantrips so you're not affecting the board on your way to turn five anyway the other thing to keep in mind is there are rarely etb effects in the format so you know blinking a mutate stack to spread it out can definitely be good. I've had an opponent do that to me and it was backbreaking. You know, you can cantrip off a sleeper dart or gain four off a honey mammoth, but by and large, a lot of the ETB stuff hinges around mutate. So I think Yorian's a little nerfed in this format in that way as well. Yeah. So even getting this pack one pick one, I would, you know, be happy to just pick up a five mana four or five flyer that may have some incidental blink synergies in my deck, but I am not, you know, I, I really feel like the draft has to go poorly or or quote unquote a lot has to go right for me to want to go down that 60 card path absolutely agree it's a bummer to end the note here on these exciting cards with a, with a card like yorian because I, I by and large i really feel like these are 
some of the coolest things you can do in limited. And the fact that they're rare, I mean, we talked about the numbers, like you said, you've companioned some of these four times. I've done, you know, I've done Karuga six times. These cards come up a lot. And I think knowing how to maximize them and knowing when to move in on them, when to move off of them is some of the most fun draft experiences in the format. Yeah, hundred percent. They're like stip drafts that are built into the format that pay you off handsomely for completing the stip draft successfully. So it's not like lowering your win rate like you normally are when you do a stipulation draft. Absolutely. Except when you're trying to go for the 60 card stip. Yeah. Oof. Yikes. That's a great place to wrap us up. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Come check us out on all sorts of places on the internet. So first up, I, we got to talk about our sweet new website, lordsolimited.com. That's like the one-stop shop for all things Lords Limited. You can get links to our streams there. Mine is twitch.tv slash lordtupperware. Ben's is twitch.tv tv slash mr metronome there's a link to our youtube channel youtube.com slash lords of limited there's a tier list there for our current card rankings from Aquaria layer of behemoths there's a contact us page there's all of our episodes there a lot of places to check out our content on the internet ben absolutely and if you've got burning questions about to companion or not to companion you can shoot us an email at lords of limited at gmail.com thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of lords of limited thanks everybody see you later I was thinking about before we started talking about them, putting you on the spot and seeing how many of the 10 you knew. I Let's see if I can get any of the other five. Umori, no idea. The sliming ooze. <laughs> Zerda, the cycling cat. Okay. Yep. This is your two for two. Gigantha. This one Elmer, you should know. Elmer incarnated. You, you, know, you don't know Gigantha? <laughs> no. Okay. Do you, do you know you do know Yorian? in like every, every standard deck. Yorian, the Soaring Dragon. Uh-huh. And, and Kahira, li- King of the Monsters. Uh, wow. Yeah, you knew all five of them. <laughs> five for five. <laughs> I have no idea. No clue. <laughs>